ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hollywood has come to Walhalla in regional Victoria as filming of the Liam Neeson blockbuster Ice Road 2, Road to the Sky, has wrapped up today. It's been an exciting time for the small town of 35 people as the movie transformed the Gibson Valleys into a Nepalese village and people came from far and wide to see Hollywood in action. Why did you come down today? Oh, to catch a glimpse of Liam ne- Neeson, but I missed out. Oh, I just came to see Liam and the team here, mm-hmm. and I met a Nepali friend here, and he said it like, looks exactly like the same. And we were really thrilled to see that place being built only for this scene. I raised the idea that we should get a cutout. We thought it would be a good idea because not everyone's going to get a chance to meet the big fella. He heard about our cutout idea, and he came in this morning and, and met the family, and we got some shots. Today in Australia-wide, the economic benefits of Hollywood coming to a regional town. I'm Sinead Mangan, coming to you from Wajuk Country, Perth. As people in North Queensland start sandbagging and preparing their homes to ensure against the damage of incoming cyclones Kiralee, which is expected to cross tomorrow, residents in parts of the Northern Territory have been dealing with floods. In recent years, these extreme weather events driven by a changing climate are occurring with increasing regularity and it's placing huge pressure on the insurance industry. Research published from the Actuaries Institute back in 2022 warned one million households in Australia already faced extreme levels of insurance stress and will bear the brunt of future premium hikes driven by climate change. And that was before the inflationary pressure of last year. In high-risk parts of the country, largely in northern Australia, those that are more prone to floods and cyclones, Home insurance premiums have soared, raising concerns many people will decide to actually drop their insurance cover. Now, in response to this, the federal government introduced a $10 billion cyclone and flood reinsurance pool, and that was in 2021, in a bid to reduce home and business insurance premiums for Northern Australia. The scheme kind of acts like insurance for insurers and aims to prevent costs being passed on to consumers. Insurers also access insurance to manage their exposure to large losses in the event of a natural disaster. But with increasing risks in vulnerable areas comes increasing costs. And this is where the government has decided to step in. Now, Dr. Antonia Settle is from Melbourne University and she studied government monetary policy and how that relates back to insurance and household risk. And she joins me now. Thanks very much for chatting, Dr. Settle. Thank you, Snape. When asked about this, you've described the scheme as a blunt tool. Why do you describe it that way? The issue with the reinsurance pool is that it doesn't target low-income households or vulnerable households, for example. So it simply provides reinsurance to insurers and hopes that those insurers pass that on. Now, we've got a, a huge problem around climate risk, we've got huge questions about the distribution of climate risk. Um, and to just kind of throw money at insurers and hope that it, it trickles down is not necessarily the best way of going about it. The ACCC had proposed uh, a subsidy for low-income households. That is one way of having a bit more of a targeted approach that really tries to address the needs of low-income households specifically. Um, but there's, yeah, there's various ways of doing it. Uh, The other issue is that it doesn't offer a way of pricing in adaptation at the household level. 
So the idea there is that there's lots of ways that households can uh, improve their resilience in the in the face of climate risk, where you uh, you know reinforce your garage doors or you know there's flood risk stuff around. I mean, raising houses being the most obvious one, but also uh, you know moving power points up the wall and there's lots of kind of small things that households can do uh, to reduce their climate risk, but they cost money. <laughs> you know, one way of incentivising that is by making sure that premiums uh, reflect those kind of investments so that you get a lower insurance premium if you make those kind of changes to your home. Um, the reinsurance pool tries to do that. It, like there is some kind of um, kind of mechanism by which that can happen in the reinsurance pool, but it doesn't seem to work insofar as it hasn't really been picked up by households. But the issue is that we've got to reduce the overall risk. So we need to support households to make those kind of changes. Uh, and having those kind of changes reflected insurance, insur in insurance prices is one way to do that. Uh, but we're not seeing that with the insurance pool. Prior to this pool being created, how many insurers were willing to insure people who are living in northern Australia? Has it increased the pool of people, pool of insurers that were willing to give people insurance that live there? Look, that's a little bit contested. The ACCC in its report that I think was from 2020, they did an investigation into the cost of insurance in Northern Australia and they found that no insurers had actually pulled out of the market. But there were stories and continue to be stories anecdotally of insurers being unwilling to insure. So the idea with the reinsurance pool is they're trying to make sure that that doesn't happen mm. um, and that insurers are always able to um, participate in that market. Formally, there aren't areas where insurers are pulling out, but it seems that insurers are, are pricing uh, some premiums so high that it is effectively pulling out. And what about the other issue then of being underinsured or not insuring at all? Is there any statistics around how many people are taking that risk? No, and that's a real problem uh, because it's very hard to understand how big the issue is. We don't know. We basically, we don't know. But because insurance premiums have risen so much in the last few years, uh, there's a pretty safe assumption uh, that underinsurance is really very high, um, as is uninsurance. I mean, the other issue around collecting data on underinsurance is that you just you, you need to know the value of the home. You need to know details of the actual insurance contract to identify whether people are underinsured. You know, there's a lot of issues uh, emerging in uh, post-flight areas in Victoria, for example, uh, around people not having enough money to rebuild. I mean, that's that's something that's current. That's something that's happening mm. every day yeah. uh, at the moment because they've insured for a sum that's less to rebuild. Or uh, another problem is that uh, households can't necessarily kind of build back better. And so that is an issue and that's something that certainly uh, a lot of advocates are quite keen to address uh, in this world of insurance of how to ensure that insurance uh, payouts provide enough money not only to rebuild the same house that's just as climate exposed uh, but to actually build better houses, you know, build back a house that's raised if it's in a flood area or secured in, in whatever ways are appropriate locally. Um, so how to ensure that households can actually build more climate resilient homes when they do rebuild if they are insured. It was only at the end of December that all the insurance companies signed up to this, but 
But this reinsurance, right. uh, this reinsurance pool pretty much props up the industry and that the winners are the insurance industry. Is that a fair, a fair reading of the situation? Well, look, it's difficult to say because I think that the reinsurance pool is still evolving, but certainly there's certainly um, trends in other areas of policy by which the government tends to kind of provide the infrastructure for a private market, you know, through regulation and through subsidies that then leaves the private sector in, in the market profiting but leaves the risk with the government. Uh, and I think we can probably fairly safe, safely apply that to the reinsurance pool. I mean, what's the point of having private insurers if they're not actually holding the risk and all the risk is sitting with government? The government may as well just deliver some of those services itself. And I think there's a, a lot of support for much greater government involvement. And I think, you know, we'll see that, if not here, certainly in other countries, it's the government ultimately that foots the bill in the case of a disaster through disaster payments and, you know, all of those kind of government programs that, that go on to rebuild communities after a disaster. So when the government's kind of left footing the bill in the end anyway, it does seem to be that we need to be very careful about how we distribute risk between the government and the private sector and households. The reinsurance pool, I mean, in a way, it's a structure that we can build on. So we can, for example, try to build in um, more scope for household level adaptation to be priced into premiums through the pool, for example. We can administer subsidies through the pool, but it is a kind of difficult and indirect way of going about it and it leaves yeah, less and less space for the private sector to actually do anything apart from, you know, delivering a very clearly defined service that the state, you know, sets out. As an economist, just finally, as an economist, do you agree with the government stepping into ins- to the insurance industry and subsidising it? Yeah, I mean, I think the government ultimately has to. There's no way out of this that, you know, the households can't bear the risk. It's too expensive. Uh, The risk is increasing and it's just too expensive. And I think that we need to be really careful that we don't end up in a situation in which households that have the means can move out of more uh, risky areas and leave behind low-income households concentrated in the most risky areas and often without insurance. We see that already in the data. So house price data, for example, we don't have access to data on the on premiums, on insurance premiums. I would expect there would be a pretty clear correlation between the cost of insurance premiums and the cost of houses so that higher premiums are going to reduce the value of a home. So we've got to be really careful that, you know, we're already seeing this. We're seeing that riskier areas within towns and riskier regions are cheaper to buy a house in. We live in an economy where, you know, economic security of households is secured through home ownership. And that's not a coincidence. That's a policy choice, you know, and that's a a policy choice uh, that we've had in this country for a long time. So we need to be really careful that we don't end up with low-income households exposed to the most risk. That's, you know, that's a really, a really big problem. And the other big problem, potential problem, you know, or the other thing that we need to be really careful about is that, uh, you know, this issue of economic security for households, depending on home ownership, I mean, we just can't let households lose their biggest asset in an economy that's structured like ours. We need to make 
sure that that households who, who buy homes are able are able to to not lose those homes or not be able to insure those homes. So I think we've got a, a long path ahead of us in how how housing is managed on the long term in different regions in Australia. And we need to be very careful in how risk is shared between the private market, between the government and between households so that we don't see those kind of changes where we get a whole lot of low-income people stuck in really risky areas with no insurance because that's a, you know, that's a big social problem. And I don't think the reinsurance pool is going to solve our problems. Um, and I think, you know, this is a problem the governments all over the world are grappling with. Dr. Antonia Settle from Melbourne University. Thanks for talking to Australia Wide. Thank you. The small country town of Walhalla in the Gibson region of Victoria has been completely transformed for the filming of the Hollywood action thriller Ice Road 2, Road to the Sky, and it stars Liam Neeson. This is personal. The movie crew have turned the historic gold mining town into a set of a Nepalese village, much to the delight of locals. People have come from as far afield as Western Australia to check out the action and get a glimpse of the so-called big fella from Ireland, actor Liam Neeson. And our reporter Rachel Lucas was there. Now, Rachel, this must have been one of the funnest gigs you've had in some time, I'd imagine. Oh, yes. It was just lovely to see such a very laid-back vibe on this set, very Australian very casual. It's just lovely when you're watching something quite interesting and colourful unfold before your eyes. Yeah, everybody's in a good mood. I was looking at your footage, which was which was really lovely, but those steep valleys of Walhalla are completely transformed. It's hard to believe that that's where you are. Can you describe exactly what you were peering into? Well, Walhalla's a, a little historic gold mining town, which it still has its original buildings, which hasn't been sort of developed or untouched. It's a tourist town now, and it's nestled in this very steep valley with a river coming through the town. It looks a bit like, I guess, an old Western town that you might see in a Western movie. Basically, they have, for the movie, coloured, painted with different vibrant colours, the different buildings. They've added bunting, flags, washing on the the balcony of the pub. Um, They've got a market there with baskets and milk cans and and fruit hanging off off, uh, some of the 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 windows there so they've really tried to give it a very colorful Kadari village vibe and in post production they're using this technology called volume screens which will they will then i guess uh generate mount everest or right. or further mountains in the background to to kind of amplify the Nepalese feeling. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's all very clever how they do it. They, they're they really just looking at Walhalla as a base for the shot and then they'll embellish that in the post-production. That would be amazing to actually see that on the screen, ha- having seen it in the flesh, you know, that small little unit and then how they expand it out. Now, the Nepalese community of Victoria have been very heavily involved in this film and many of them have been employed as movie extras. When you spoke to them, Rachel, what did they say about this experience? 
Well, they were quite fascinated. I mean, the great thing about Melbourne and I guess Australia now is we are so culturally diverse. You can find extras from any cultural heritage now for your film. And uh, we've got a Nepalese community in Little Latrobe Valley as well as Melbourne and they sort of found out about the casting call through Facebook and uh, they basically uh, all signed up and there's probably 30 or 40 extras there and actually some of the audience uh, got roped in as extras on the day because it's obviously attracted a lot of people from India, Bangladesh, sort of um, Nepalese subcontinent uh, parts um, of the world who have come to actually watch the the uh, for filming. So they've reacted very positively. They found it fascinating and they thought it was pretty authentic how the set was dressed, although some of the writing on the buildings was a bit... Um, let's just say grammatically incorrect. Oh, right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, they that was the only thing they said was a bit strange, but they thought that all of the details on the set were pretty spot on. Now, you spoke to Krishna Rimal, who is an engineer by, by day, and he is now a movie extra on this film. Let's have a listen to what he had to say. I find it quite authentic, even the village back in Kodari, so which is a mountainous slice back in uh, Nepal. Attention to detail that what I was really impressed, for example, with the the props are being used over there, the milk cans and a lot of colours, the shops. And have you seen Liam Neeson? Yes, I saw him twice. I saw him on the first day and I saw him today, yeah. That's Krishna Rimal. Ramal there speaking to our reporter, Rachel Lucas. Now, Rachel, I'd imagine there's a fair share of gawkers wanting to have a look at um, Liam Neeson in the flesh. How many tourists have um, turned up to take a peek? Well, this is really interesting because everyone just assumed that this was going to be a closed set. Now, there's only one way in and one way out of Walhalla. So we thought, oh, of course, no one's going to be allowed in. But I was just so surprised at how accessible the whole thing was. There were people sitting in their fold-out chairs with their binoculars <laughs> coming up for the day with their thongs for a, like watching the cricket or something. <laughs> it was just quite hilarious um, how laid back it was and how accessible it was. Uh, and, of course, the other thing is, as we have, you know, as part of modern life, everyone gets their cameras out. So you have this sort of bizarre thing of people filming the filming yeah. being done and... Of course, everyone is trying to find Liam Neeson and he had a body double, but you could see him doing the fake punching, um, I guess, with music behind it and frenetic editing. It all comes together and looks seamless, but it almost looks a bit comical from afar, a bit like a a slapstick silent movie. (laughs) Rachel, before I let you go, I'll have to ask you, did you actually meet Liam Neeson? As you can imagine, as as an Irish woman by birth, I'd be very keen. Did you get to meet him? No, I didn't. He uh, had retired to his uh, caravan slash mobile home uh, (laughs) by that time, by the time I arrived. But one of the girls in the office, uh, Anne, who does our Saturday show, she saw him in the pizza shop and he was very friendly everyone said he's a lovely man a true gentleman um very sort of humble and signed autographs took photos with people did all of that and yeah just a lovely lovely guy who's who's uh you know 
has obviously wanted to know about the area and, and interact with the local people and just get a bit of a feel for the the whole area. So, yeah, I uh, didn't to get hear. to meet him. <laughs> yeah, that's a shame. But it's great to hear that he is a decent man in the flesh because you do imagine that he would be and still making action movies in his 70s, which is quite remarkable. Rachel Lucas, thanks very much for talking to Australia Wide. Thanks, Sinead. And finally, we head to Margaret River in Western Australia's southwest to meet local Mary Flynn, who's an interesting take on what's coming to us all eventually, death. More of us are trying to reduce our environmental footprint in every part of our lives, so it makes sense some people are even considering the impact after death. Mary Flynn has given it a lot of thought and she's built her own coffin that she'll be using for a non-conventional burial one day. Amelia Searson has the story from Margaret River. Mary Flynn's blue eyes brighten when she talks about the natural pine coffin she built for herself. I've painted green cream and blue and I haven't finished yet. I've got lots more to do. I'm going to put poppies on it. The 80-year-old grandmother wants her biodegradable coffin to be buried at Carradale Cemetery, three hours south of Perth, but not in the conventional section with headstones and plastic flowers. Mary has her eye on a sunny spot at the top of a hill overlooking an area of the cemetery that's been set aside for burials deemed natural. We take so much from the earth, now we can give something back. You can decompose, you can feed the earth, the trees, the shrubs, flowers. There's a few requirements to have a natural burial. Bodies can't be prepared with any chemicals and they have to be buried in a biodegradable coffin that can decompose without leaving anything harmful in the ground. Greg Skiles is part of a local group that Mary started several years ago called Death and Dying Matters. The group focuses on normalising conversations around death and educating people about grief. I think it's very important that people have options and so they can choose something that meets or fills their natural desires or their own, own whatever they would like. And I think it's unfortunate that people aren't aware of the options. People just assume that a conventional burial is the only thing you can do or maybe cremation, but there are other options. Greg says interest in natural burials is growing as the community becomes more eco-conscious. The main benefit is that your substance of your body becomes back into part of the ecosystem. You don't have the high carbon cost of a cremation. That puts a lot of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. And then in a conventional burial, you don't have the chemicals and things uh, leaching into the environment from the traditional coffin. The natural burial area at Carradale is currently sparse with only a few trees, bushes and sandy mounds where people have recently been buried. But the aim is one day it will blend in with the surrounding shrubby bushland. It will be kind of indistinguishable from any other bushland around here except for the fact that there will be a sign saying that there are people buried here. That's the hope, is it just becomes completely natural. Birds and animals and yeah, natural wildlife would just live here just like they would in any other part of the bush. And here is a beautiful shell, and it's got the beautiful lines going concentrically around, anti-clockwise, there it goes, into this beautiful wall, which is like the spiral of life. Mary's never been afraid of death, and she thinks this is because of her childhood in Ireland. 
She was introduced to the idea as a five-year-old when she would run around the streets of Mullingar with her friends. They'd find cards out the front of people's homes which indicated someone had died and their body was on display inside. We'd look at the body before we went downstairs, really closely when we were kneeling down. We'd watch carefully to make sure that there was no breathing, they weren't moving their eyelashes, they were definitely dead. And it didn't worry us in the least, because we did it often. (laughs) So the reason for the trip was really to get a drink of lovely cordial and some cake. She hopes learning about non-conventional burial methods, like natural burials, will spark more open conversations about the often taboo subject. It's not frightening, and once people learn to be comfortable with the word death and dying, you can get on, you can, you can look it in the, in the eye, and you can get on with life, and enjoy life, and live a fuller life. While Mary's not ready to go just yet, she couldn't ask for a better final resting spot. Here is a perfect spot. I mean, you can just look out over the view and the trees are gorgeous and the wind blows. It's like an orchestra in front of you. I was going to say, I just can't wait to be buried here. But yeah, I can wait, definitely. (laughs) Life's too good. Sounds beautiful where she's chosen. Mary Flynn, ending that story from Amelia Searson in WA Southwest. And that ends Australia Wide for this Wednesday. I'm Sinead Mangan. Cheerio. ABC Listen.